We've been talking about the tests of genuine faith, and last week as we were talking about that in our time together, we discussed our third proof of genuine faith. We talked about our third proof of genuine faith, and we did that from the book of James, and we were in chapter 1, and we were studying last week the section between verses 19 and 25. And it was there that we determined that people whose spirits have been transformed by the regenerating work of God, people whose lives have been filled with the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, will have a hunger for the Word of God. Isn't that right? You will have a hunger for the Word of God. And those people will delight themselves, the Bible says. They delight themselves in the Word of God and they look to the Word of God as their counselor. Those who have genuine faith have a hunger in their hearts for the Word of God and they will hurry to the place that the Word of God is properly handled, where it is properly explained, where it is properly taught. And they will be quick to hear the truth of the Word of God. They will rush to places where it's properly taught and they will be quick to grasp the truth and to hold on to it. But they'll be equally as quick, we said, to run away from the places where there is shallow and inaccurate teaching because they have a hunger in their hearts for the true Word of God. Unlike those people who scurry from one well-marketed presentation to another. Those people who have genuine faith do not become angry. They do not become upset by the honest presentation of the Word of God. In fact, they welcome it warmly. They don't grow impatient. They don't become angry as the Word of God challenges them and pricks their heart and prunes them. In fact, on the other hand, what they do is they allow the Word of God to have its cleansing effect in their lives. They allow the Word of God to change them. They allow the Word of God to challenge their hearts, and they welcome it warmly, and they welcome it eagerly, just as they would welcome an old friend. And when they're confronted with the Word of God, even some truths that are difficult, they don't just run away and find a church where the teaching is easier. They don't run away and go to a place where things are a little bit less coarse, They remain under the refining work. They remain under the refining work of the Word of God and they allow their character to be shaped. They allow their character to be trained and they allow their faith to be made strong by the instruction of the Word of God. And then, after they've heard the Word and they've warmly received it just as they would an old friend, they gaze at the reflection in the mirror. They gaze at their spiritual reflection in the mirror and they identify their imperfections and they identify the opportunities for greater spiritual growth. And when they have done that, they don't just walk through the church doors and return to life as usual. Rather, they apply the instruction that they have heard. They apply the Word of God as it was taught to them and they receive it and they change their lives based on the action that they take on the instruction of the Word of God. They do what they've heard, you see? They're not hearers. They actually do the word that they have received. They take action on godly instruction. And I want you to know, friends, that that is a great test to determine the genuineness of your faith. What do you do with the word of God? What do you do with it after you've received it? Do you know that there are a few people who actually pass that test? There are a few people that actually pass that test. The word teaches that the gate is narrow. And there are a few people who will find it. Most people don't pass that test. So that's why, as I mentioned last week, we're always so pleasantly surprised when we're in the marketplace and we see believers there. 
Because most people, even though they perform spiritual looking exercises like going to church and putting money in the offering every week, even though they may perform spiritual exercises like leading in worship or sitting on our church boards, the truth of the matter is that most people do not really have, even though they have all of these external things, they don't really have any understanding of the real power of the Word of God. They're not real. There are few that find the way. And I want to share something with you because that's the group of people that Paul was talking about when he wrote his student Timothy in 2 Timothy and he said this in chapter 3 in verse 1. He said, but understand this, Timothy. Follow closely, friends. In the last days there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Kids, how did that make its way in? I didn't write that just so that you know. That's the Word of God, man. They'll be disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Listen, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened by the sins and led astray by various passions. Now look, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Listen to this. They are always learning, but they are never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Friends, the world is filled with people such as these. They are the people who seek only their own gratification. The most important thing to them is what they want, and they want it right now. They don't want to tell themselves no to anything. They don't want to restrain themselves for anything. They are lovers of themselves. They are lovers of money. They are proud. They are arrogant. They are disobedient to their parents. They are ungrateful. They have absolutely no self-control. And Paul sums it all up, and he takes all of those characteristics, and he wraps them up in verse 4 by saying that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what it all amounts to. They love pleasure. They love their own satisfaction more than they love God. Don't you think that's the right way to sum up all those things? I love myself. I'm more concerned about myself than I am with God. They love their own pleasure more than they love God. And that's why they prefer teaching that is emotionally and euphorically charged. They prefer teaching that is soft and gentle in nature because people derive a great deal more pleasure from a sense of euphoric spiritual experience than they do from the pruning and correcting work of the Word of God which comes from accurate teaching. But inside them, they have this sense of spiritual need, and they try to fill that sense of need by going to gatherings where nothing is required of them. Think of that. They want to satisfy their sense of obligation, but they don't want to make the sacrifice required to love God. Now, what's most interesting to me is in verse 7, Paul says they are always learning, and they are never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. What does he mean by that? Do you know what he means by that? I'd like to try to illustrate that for you if I could. In my workplace, I often can see this. There are students who are fresh out of college, right out of their degree programs, and they'll come and they'll apply for a job at the company. 
And I always love these conversations because they feel like they should like be able to come to your company and just command this premium for their employment. They should be paid a great deal of money, which is fantastic. I hope they get it. But it's always interesting because when I press them and I ask them to justify paying them such a high salary, you know what they say? Well, I have great learning. I've been to college. I had this great degree at a great college. And I say, so why should I pay you that much? Well, I have a master's of business administration and management. And I say, well, fantastic. Why don't you tell me about a business that you have managed? And they say, well, I I haven't. I just got out of college. And I say, okay, because they have theory, but they have no application. You see? They have theory, but they have absolutely no application. Or maybe I'll speak to a a student who just graduated with high marks from a great college sales program. And I love this one too. And I say, why should I pay you that kind of money? And they say, well, I finished at the top of my sales class. I was top of the class. I say, wow, that's fantastic. Who are some of the customers that you've sold to? Why don't you tell me who some of the CEOs are with whom you've sat across from a table in the board meeting and you've negotiated with them? Why don't you tell me who some of those are? And let's, I mean, tell me about your experience. Well, I just got out of school. I haven't done any of those things yet. You see, they have theory, but they have not yet applied it to anything. They know how to structure a sales call. They just can't sell anything. The fact that you know how to structure a sales call, the fact that you know how to control your body at the negotiation table, they mean absolutely nothing to me if you can't sell. It does absolutely nothing for me if you can't make a sale. You may have learned a lot, but you don't know anything. Does that make sense? You've learned a lot, but you really don't know anything. You see, your great learning is completely worthless to me unless it manifests itself in actions that I can quantify. You following? If your sales training doesn't lead you to sell something, it's a waste of time and money. That's what happens in churches all around America every week. People make their way to church. They listen to great music. They listen to great musicians performing very well on their instruments. They may be moved by the worship service. They may even raise their hands. And sometimes you'll even see a tear coming down their face as they're emotionally stirred and stimulated. And then there'll be this guy and they'll sit contently while this young energetic man stands up and reads the scripture to them. And maybe he'll tell them a couple of great jokes. Maybe he'll tell them a couple of great stories and everyone applauds. He's so wonderful. And then they conclude with a little bit more music and a raise of the hand maybe. And then they get in their cars and they go home knowing that they have done their spiritual activity for the week. They've checked that box. They've gotten church attendance out of the way. And then they go back to the weekly grind where they continue to gratify only themselves, proudly pursuing their money. They continue to ignore and disobey their parents. They have ungrateful hearts. They exercise absolutely no self-control. They're mean to one another and they're conceited. And then what happens is the very next Sunday, they put on their nice clothes and they get back to the church and they say and they do the churchy things, taking a few notes here and there maybe. They hear the words every single week. They listen, my friends, to the theory, but they are unable to make application. Do you see? They listen to the theory, but they don't make application. They've learned a lot, but they don't know a thing. They've learned a lot, but they have absolutely no knowledge. They structure a great sales call, but they never sell a thing. That's what Paul is saying. They have theory, but no application. Listen, they learn but their learning doesn't work because they can't apply it. 
Does that make sense? You following me? Last week as we spoke about verses 19 through 25 in chapter 1, that's what James was telling us. He was saying it's paralegizomai. It is outside of logic. It is illogical for you to hear the Word of God and then not do what it says. It doesn't make sense. He says you're deceiving yourselves if you do that. Isn't that what he said? He said you're deceiving yourselves. You're going... All you've done is you've structured a great sales call, but you haven't sold a thing. You have all this theory, but you can't apply it. You have learning, but you have no knowledge. You understand what I'm saying? You have learning, but you have absolutely no knowledge. You have theory. You have no practice. You can create a great call. You just can't sell. Paul says in 2 Timothy, you have the appearance of godliness. You have the appearance of being religious. You look like everything is good. You look like you've got it all together. You go to church. You take the notes. You raise your hands during worship. You do all of those things, but you don't have the power. You cannot make application. You don't put what you learned to work when you leave. You have learning. You've learned all week. Week after week, you've learned, but you have no knowledge. You can't apply it. And that's who all those people are that Paul was talking about in Timothy. They look religious. But they're powerless to make application of the Word of God. They're powerless to make application of all the things that they've learned. I want you to think about this for a minute. Wouldn't it be great? This would be fantastic. Wouldn't it be great if all God required you to do was come here and hear? Wouldn't it be great? I mean, if all God ever required of us was to hear, how much more popular would the gospel message be? How popular would the gospel message be if it were to declare, God saved you through the death of Jesus Christ, now you can go and do whatever you want? Wouldn't that be great? What an easy sell. Everybody would sign up for that. But what is not popular is the gospel message that is the true gospel message that says, God saved you through the death of Jesus Christ, so now take up your cross and sacrifice everything that you want. Put all of your desires away. Set aside all of your own passions. Sacrifice them and follow me. That's not very popular, is it? Who wants to sign up for that? You see, that's the real gospel message. That's the real truth of the Word of God sacrifice everything to follow him. And nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to receive that. They'd much rather hear God loves you and and he accepts you just the way you are. He loves you and accepts you just the way you are. And then they want to go out and they want to do some things that make them look religious, but they make zero actual application. They make zero application. And then in our passage for today, this is where we end up. James takes us to the point where he tells us what application actually looks like. So I want to take you now to verse 26, and this is what you'll find. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I like the word that James uses here for the word religious. It's called threskos. And what it means is it's an act of religious conduct or practice, you see? So this threskos is religious conduct. It's it's speaking of religious practice. It's an external religious activity. It is doing things. And remember, in the context of James, we're determining the legitimacy of your faith. I want you to remember that. And I'm going to help you with the literal translation of this passage, and this is what it would sound like. It says this, if someone seems to be religious, this is the literal translation, if someone seems to be religious, okay, and I'm going to pause there. So we've got this guy who seems to be religious. 
If someone seems to be religious, and now here's this guy, you look at him, and it looks like he's got all of his things together. He seems to be religious, he goes to church, he does the churchy things, he raises his hands, he's that guy. He takes the notes, he does all of those things. Maybe he even goes up and takes communion at the end of service. So he has been learning, he's doing churchy things, he has the theory, he's doing the religious stuff. But now back to the literal translation of verse 26, look again. If someone seems to be religious but not bridling his tongue, but deceiving the heart of himself. Seems religious. Looks like the real deal. Not bridling his tongue, but deceiving the heart of himself. I don't think we need to go into a lot of detail about what a bridle is. You all know what a bridle is, don't you? You know how it works? It's got that little metal bit that you stick in the horse's mouth, and then you, it's attached to a crown piece that goes up over his head and behind his ears, and it keeps the bit in his mouth, keeps him from spitting it out. And then you take the reins and you attach them to the, to the bit of the bridle. And then what happens is, when you put that bridle on the horse, you can control him. You can guide him. You can keep him from running away. You can keep him from putting his head down. You don't want him to put his head down when you're riding him. And you can use those reins to turn the horse and to guide him and to send him wherever you want to go. But what happens if you take the bridle off of a horse that's a little bit more spirited? What happens? There's a pretty good chance that the horse is going to be controlling the rider, right? There's a pretty good chance that you're going to have a hard time holding on to that one. Now listen, when James speaks of the tongue, I want you to understand what we're talking about here. He's not just talking so much about that red slab of meat in your mouth. He's speaking of your language. He's speaking about the way that you talk. He's speaking of your conversation. How many of you parents, this has never happened in my house, but how many of you parents (laughs) have ever told your kids, you better watch your mouth? You better watch your mouth. Have you ever known anyone who's in the habit of allowing his or her language, his or her mouth, his or her speech to run away and control the rest of the body? You ever known anyone like that? It happens all the time. And the mouth that's uncontrolled, the mouth that's unbridled will run away with the rest of the body. It'll be out of control. Did you know that the Bible has a lot to say about controlling your speech? Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible has a lot to say about watching your mouth? In Psalm 34, 13, it's written, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You'll remember Ephesians 4, 29. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Proverb 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. I like that. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips or his tongue is prudent. Listen, your tongue, your mouth, the things that you say is a great indicator as to what is in your heart. Did you know that? In Matthew 12, as Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, you remember the conversation? He told them that the language that comes out of the mouth is simply the fruit of the tree that's growing in the heart. Do you get that? The things that come out of your mouth are just the fruit of the tree that is taking root in your heart. In verse 34, this is what he said in chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. But I tell you, now listen, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
People will give an account for every careless word they have spoken, for by their words they are justified, and by their words they are condemned. The matter is the heart. It's not the mouth. It's the heart, because the mouth is only speaking what is going on in the heart, you see? Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth brings forth its fruit. So the mouth is telling you what is going on in your heart. So he who speaks words that condemn himself is filled with a heart that is not loving and inclined toward God. He who speaks word of love and joy can only be speaking from a heart that is inclined toward God. The mouth is speaking what is in the heart. When you let your uncontrolled mouth run away and create havoc, you are giving an indication as to what is going on in your heart. And what does James say about people who allow their mouths to take off running, take the bridle off and let them just get up and run away? He says that people who appear to be religious, who have runaway mouths, they're deceiving their own hearts. They're deceiving their own hearts. They're deceiving their own cardia. Do you remember that word? Remember what I told you about the word cardia? I said that the ancient Jew thought of the heart in the same way that we think of our minds. Remember? It was in the heart that a man would think. What does it say? As a man thinks in his heart. As he thinks in his heart. That's where all of that was happening. But you are deceiving your own cardia. That's what the heart does. It thinks. So the man who appears to be religious, not controlling his tongue, is deceiving his own mind. He is deceiving his own mind. He is probably not deliberately and purposefully hypocritical. Nobody is like that. He's not deliberately being hypocritical. He is probably not deliberately putting on an act. It's that he has tricked his mind into believing something that is not true. He has tricked himself into believing that he is something that he is not. He has deceived his very own heart. And he doesn't know because it's deceived. These are the people of verse 22 who hear the Word of God and they don't do what it says. They're deceived. They've heard the message to keep corrupting talk from coming out of their mouths, but they've not applied the bridle. And in doing so, they've lied to their own minds. In this case, the proof that they're deceived is the fact that their speech and their language are out of control and it betrays a perverted heart. It betrays an unregenerate heart. But, friends, I want you to know that we could plug in just about any truth that we've ever discussed here. Let me help you do that. You seem to be religious, but you've heard the instruction about living in ungodly relationships outside of marriage, and you refuse to apply the truth and deal with it. You're lying to your own heart. You're deceiving your own mind. And you're convinced that everything is all right, but you're deceived. You seem religious, But you've heard the instruction about obeying and honoring your parents. You've heard it. You know what it says. And yet you refuse to apply the truth and submit your will to the will of your parents and to the direction of your parents. You're lying to your own mind. That's what you're doing. You're deceiving yourselves. And your religion is worthless. You've heard the instruction about getting drunk and you refuse to apply it. You're lying to your own mind. Your religion is worthless. Those people have so thoroughly deceived their own minds that they are unable to discern the fact that their religious is completely useless. Their religious activity is completely useless. It is completely and utterly devoid of any value whatever. It's completely worthless. It means absolutely nothing. 
That's what James says. You seem to have it together, spiritually speaking. You appear to receive the Word of God warmly, but you don't use it to affect change in your lives. Your mind has been tricked, and all of the religious trappings, all of the religious activity, all of the religious stuff, the churchy things that you're doing are completely worthless. They mean absolutely nothing, and there's no value in them at all. It's doing absolutely nothing for you. It's not accomplishing anything spiritual and eternal in your lives. Your religious activity is impure and it's defiled. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you know God cares about widows and orphans? Did you know that? God cares about them. In fact, in Psalm 68, he calls himself the father to the fatherless. Have you ever heard that? He's the father to the fatherless. He's the protector of the widow. And I want you to know that in ancient days, they did not have the generous system of public assistance that we have today. They didn't have that. But God made provision for those people who could not provide for themselves. For those people who were unable to provide for themselves, he took care of them. In the book of Leviticus, he made provision in the fields for the widows and the orphans to receive food. In the book of Deuteronomy, he actually required a tithe every third year. That's 10%. He required a tenth of everything every third year that you would lay up as provisions for the widow and the fatherless to provide for them, to make sure that they had everything they need. It's important, friends, that we care for those people who are unable to care for themselves. How we treat widows and orphans, friends, this is the point. I want you to understand it is not, even though it is really important, it is not the definitive measuring stick of the purity of your religion. Neither is how well you control your tongue. It is not the definitive measuring stick of the purity of your religion. It's important for us to understand that James, these things are all representative of the real issues of genuine belief. Do you understand that? This is what he's saying. The real issue is sacrificial love. To store up for widows and orphans required a sacrifice. It required that people gave a big chunk of what they had so that they could sacrifice and care for them. And it was something that someone might have said, you know, I'm setting aside this portion of the harvest. I could be using that for my family. I could be buying things for my family. I could be tending for and caring for my family. But I'm giving it away and sacrificing it for someone else. It's an act of sacrifice. That's what it is. For me to control my mouth, for me to control my actions, for me to exercise self-control, for me to exercise restraint over my passions and my desires so that I can bring glory and honor to God, that requires love that demands sacrifice. Do you understand? Giving up your passions, giving up the things that you desire so that you can bring glory and honor to God, it's a sacrifice, and that is the real point. It's showing love to God through this sacrifice. I don't know, maybe as you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, Scott, I'm beginning to feel a little bit frustrated because for weeks we've talked about faith that's not genuine and faith that is deceiving and people who have deceived themselves into thinking that their faith is genuine. And I'm frustrated by that because I try so hard to get it right, but I keep slipping up. And then I worry that my faith may not be genuine. And then I come here this morning because I want to do what's best and I've even been taking notes and I've listened to you, and I feel like you're telling me that my faith is not real because I keep making mistakes. I hear the teaching week in and week out. I walk out the door and I try to apply it. I try to do what it says, but it doesn't always work out. 
It's my intent to apply the Word of God. And now you stand up here in front of us, Scott, telling me that I'm deceiving myself, that my faith is not real. When I know that my faith is real, I know that it is. I know that my faith is genuine, and you stand up here week after week telling me, watch yourselves, because your faith may not be genuine. You may be deceiving yourselves. But I know that my faith is real. I know that my faith is genuine. But I still have my sinful human tendencies, and they're hanging on to me, and I can't get away from them. And I want you to know that if you feel that way, you're not alone. In fact, I want you to know that I feel that way. As I prepare the message for you, Lord challenges my heart, And all I can see are my failings. I can see all the places where I stumble. I can see all the places where I am a disappointment to God. And I know my faith is real. I know that it is. But time after time, I slip up. And I want you to know that if that's how you feel, I get it. And I want you to be encouraged to know that there are people through history who have been far more godly than I am, who have felt the exact same way. You're not alone. You see, it's hard to live in a sinful and fallen world, isn't it? It's hard to exercise self-control. It's hard to exercise self-sacrifice when the world is constantly barraging me with those flaming arrows that we spoke about in Ephesians 6. These arrows of temptation that are just bombing me all the time and barraging me all the time. And I think that I probably fail more than all of the rest of you. I get it. And I want to introduce you to somebody really quick who felt the same way too. His name is Paul. And that's exactly how he felt. And I want you to just close your eyes as I read this to you. I'm going to read this to you from the Bible translation known as the message. And I want you to hear this and let it sink in. The words of Paul, What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing the things that I absolutely despise. I realize that I I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but then I really don't do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I go ahead and I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in the right actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every single time. In fact, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, Sin is there to trip me up. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever walked away from Root River Church feeling like that, friends? I hear the Word, and I want to do it. But sin is always right there to trip me up. I just want you to know that there's something of great encouragement for you here in Romans 7. This is a great test for the genuineness of your faith. We have to examine ourselves. We do. And remember, that's what James is all about, examining ourselves to be sure that our faith is real. But listen, Paul gives us such a great test here in Romans 7. When I sin, it's not what I want to do. You see? When I sin, it's not what I wanted to do. And when I do it, I hate it. That is the regenerated heart. That's the Holy Spirit at work inside of you. And that's proof that your faith is genuine. Do you love your sin? Or when you slip up, do you hate it? How do you feel about your sin? How do you feel about not applying the Word all of the time? Do you hate that? That's the test. Because if your faith is real, 
you're going to want to do what is right to honor God. You're going to want to do the things that honor Him. And when you fail, you will hate that you have slipped up and you will hate that you have done wrong and you will make the necessary corrections. No one in this room will ever be perfect until Christ returns and we are made perfect and we are made like He is and we see everything for what it really is. And until that time, we continue to do the best that we can. We continue to do as much as we're able. But I want you to know you're going to slip up. You're going to fail from time to time. Some of you may walk out of the door and you may walk right into a trap where you sin and you slip up and you fail again. But you don't relish your sin. You don't enjoy it. You don't love it. You don't hold on to it and admire it. And if you can say that your desire is to please God and that you take the instruction of God and that you apply it to your life when you receive it, don't become frustrated. Don't become angry at the instruction. Embrace it. And when you slip up, use it to make the necessary corrections. Correct yourselves. Correct your families. Get before God and repent. And make the adjustments. So over the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty hard instruction that said, if you don't receive the Word of God and you don't do what it says, then it's possible that you're not really a believer. And, and that is the message. But friends, if your heart is right before God, when you receive that instruction and you walk out the door and you try to apply it and you mess it all up, your heart will hate what you have done and you'll make the right correction. Father, I thank You for the Word of God that challenges and shapes and prunes. And Lord, even though it's sometimes difficult and sometimes it's painful to hear Your instruction and to be challenged in our hearts, Lord, as we go through this world knowing that we're in a sinful world and we're going to be tripped up and we're going to stumble and we're going to struggle, and all of the things that we want to do we, to honor You, we sometimes just don't get it right. And the things that we hate, the things that we don't want to do, we sometimes still find our human desires dragging us to those places and doing those things. Lord, right now through the indwelling power of Your Holy Spirit, I pray that You would break those bonds that are tying the people of Root River Church to their sin. And I pray, God, that You would set them free from whatever sinful behavior has ensnared them and entrapped them. And I pray, God, that You would make us a church that receives Your instruction warmly, that welcomes it, and a church who walks out the door and applies it. Lord, let us use Your Word to change our lives, we pray. I pray that You would cleanse our lives, cleanse our our behavior, cleanse our spirits through the power of the Word of God. And Lord, let us every day be people whose behavior is more like that of Your Son, Jesus Christ. To Your glory and Your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.